Why did a Philadelphia judge refuse to grant permission for a new trial of Mumia Abu Jamal in spite of the recent discovery of boxes of clear evidence that was kept out of reach of defense lawyers? Is there any hope left for the 40-year prisoner that people around the world see as innocent? Do the U.S. and French military maintain their forces in Africa by helping to create the same terrorist groups they state they need to fight? Is there any prospect for the dozone of peace in the Americas to prevail against the behemoth of the belligerent U.S. giant? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we hold a much delayed Black History Month episode and talk about some major and developing stories marking major struggles of black resistance in the world today. In our first half hour, we speak with Assistant Professor of History Johanna Fernandez about the March 31st decision by Judge Lucretia Clemens not to permit Mubia Abu-Jamal a new trial, despite the documents found a few years ago in the district attorney's office and where that leaves Mubia's supporters. Then in our second half hour, Pan-African Newswire editor Abiyomi Azakiwe talks about the current threats the U.S. and European countries pose to the Pan-African dream of unity and freedom and in what ways these nations are succeeding. Finally, a co-coordinator with Black Alliance for Peace, Austin Cole, joins us to talk about the zone of peace idea which unites a popular movement against the anti-democratic, anti-human policies represented by U.S. military presence in the region. On this week's program, Black Radical News in 2023, Mumia's Fate, African Colonialism and the Zone of Peace in the Americas. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of April 14, 2023. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with Campus Community Radio Station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are featured on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge that this broadcast was produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The notion that material gains on the land sprang from broken promises to accessing that land, mixed with policies of colonialism and genocide, are a blot on the country's accomplishments and needs to be acknowledged and apologized for, then making reparations to the people affected. It's now time for News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. That's almost 40,000 reports. My take? I've looked over the literature. Once again, I am amazed at the concerted effort to bury all safety signals regarding strokes and COVID-19 mRNA vaccines. Some papers say, yes, there are strokes post-COVID-19 vaccination, but they're rare, and the quote-unquote benefits of vaccination outweigh the risks of stroke. 
Of course, we now know that these quote-unquote benefits were nothing more than a well-crafted fraud. That comes from the article, Strokes are skyrocketing in young people. Pfizer and Moderna COVID-19 mRNA vaccines showed safety signals for strokes as early as November 2021, but these were ignored. By Dr. William Mackis, posted April 12th, originally published on COVID Intel. He also discussed the role of cheap, established, and generic medicines in treating cancer and how these are being suppressed, how people who have been in remission for years are now starting to relapse after receiving a COVID injection booster and why this is happening, how Professor Dalgleish's previous HIV research informed his understanding that the COVID injections were going to cause clotting and neurological issues, that he and his colleague raised the alarm, submitting their findings to the UK cabinet, and no appropriate action has been taken. That comes from the article, UK oncologist warns, cancers are rapidly developing post-COVID vaccination. Posted April 12th, originally published on The Exposé. Rishi Sunak has secretly deployed dozens of Special Operations Forces, or SOF, in Ukraine without telling Parliament leaked U.S. intelligence files appear to show. Britain had 50 SOF personnel in the war zone last month, according to a slide marked, quote-unquote, secret and, quote, not releasable to foreign nationals, unquote. The UK contingent was the largest of any NATO member by a factor of three. Latvia had 17, France 15, the US 14, and the Dutch just one. The 14 US operators were among 29 Pentagon personnel in Ukraine, including defense attaches and embassy guards. That comes from the article, US Intel leak reveals 50 elite British troops in Ukraine by Phil Miller, posted April 12th, originally published on Declassified UK. The Ukrainian government may have no control over its secret service and not even over its armed forces or neo-Nazi militias. This is because the Ukrainian government itself is controlled by foreign agents. Kiev's officials do not obey orders from Zelensky, but from NATO. In this sense, although most of the time orders are given by the Western Alliance to the Ukrainian government and only then passed on to subordinates, it is absolutely possible that some operations are carried out under direct supervision of the West without the participation of the Ukrainian government. What seems more likely is that the Belarusian authorities are right. The SBU certainly operated the Makhshulishki attacks with tactical support from the CIA and other Western intelligence services. That comes from the article, Kiev Losing Control of Its Own Intelligence Service by Lucas Leros de Amida, posted April 12th, originally published on Infobricks. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. 
Mumia Abu-Jamal is a former Black Panther and a journalist who has been imprisoned for over 40 years. He was convicted in 1982 of the murder of police officer Daniel Faulkner. His death penalty sentence was overturned in 2011, and the prosecution agreed to sentencing him to life in prison without parole. The recent discovery of documents found in the district attorney's office in 2019 showing evidence not available to Mumia's defense lawyers suggested he could and should get a new trial, and this time he would be set free. Philadelphia Judge Lucretia Clemens, after having given prosecutors and the defense 60 days to review the files, she dismissed the evidence, which emerged recently, which Supporters of Mumia pointed to the case against him being tainted by judicial bias, police, and prosecutorial misconduct. Associate Professor Johanna Fernandez teaches 20th century U.S. history and the history of social movements in the Department of History at Baruch College. He, she is the editor of Writing on the Wall, Selected Prison Writings of Mumia Abu-Jamal, and one of the coordinators of the campaign to bring Mumia home. She's the writer and producer of the film Justice on Trial, the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal. She joins us now to explain the significance of this ruling on Mumia and about where supporters of Mumia at home and abroad can go from here. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour, Professor Fernandez. It's great to have you back. Thank you so very much for covering this. Given a lot of the discussion of, of the corruption oh. and racism evident in the fraternity of police and, and the court system, this ruling, while very disappointing, it isn't necessarily a total surprise to you, is it? Well, the global movement to free Mumia uh, brought a lot of uh, pressure uh, to bear on the judge, Lucretia Clemens. It's not entirely surprising, uh, but uh, we are crestfallen and um, uh, we're, we're concerned. We're concerned that the Pennsylvania courts uh, don't uphold precedent, uh, and certainly not in the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal, uh, veteran Black Panther, uh, accused of killing a white police officer. So this is a, a highly politicized case, one around which the Fraternal Order of Police, which is the largest police organization in the world, uh, has organized around for 41 years. It's the case that the FOP uses to crank up uh, white racial fear in the United States uh, and build its apparatus of repression. So it's it's not entirely surprising, but but it's a blow. It's a blow to our movement. And the question is, where do we go from here? Yeah. I wonder if you could just take us back to the discovery of the documents from 2019 containing evidence that was never shared. There's a, a broad history of, of the Black people in the United States facing decisions in court without the defense having full access to all the facts, make, making the cases uh, you know, de facto fraudulent. Could you briefly walk us through that history 
and, and the efforts to overcome this practice. Right. So if the defense uh, doesn't have access to all of the evidence uh, and the files in a case, what you have is a sham trial, uh, as you suggested uh, in your remarks just now. So what do we see happening in January 2019? Mumia was in court um, over another issue, the issue of judicial bias. Um, and in fact, he won uh, on the issue of judicial bias in the lower courts. Judge Leon Tucker at the time, uh, a judge in the Philadelphia Court of Common Pleas, rendered a decision in favor of Mumia, but the uh, higher courts, the um, Pennsylvania Supreme Court denied um, that there was judicial bias uh, in Mumia's case. During the course of that, uh, of those hearings, six boxes of uh, new evidence emerged. Uh, during a part of the uh, hearing known as discovery. So our uh, our uh, lawyers uh, requested to see the files in the DA's office in order to prove their claims on the issue of judicial bias. After many, many months, uh, over a, a year of clamoring to see all of the files in the case. The new DA of Philadelphia, Larry Krasner, discovers six boxes, along with dozens and dozens of other boxes pertaining to different cases in Philadelphia. These boxes were discovered in a remote room in the DA's office. And within the boxes, we find a handwritten letter by the lead witness in the case. That's the lead witness for the prosecutor's office. Um, and the name of that witness is Robert Chobert. And he is asking the prosecutor at the time, Joe McGill, where have you been? I've been trying to reach you about monies owed to me, signed Robert Chobert, dated August of 1982, uh, less than a month uh, after the end uh, of Mumia's trial. So this suggests that the, the witness, the star witness of the prosecutor's um, case or uh, of the prosecutor's uh, uh, office was bribed. Uh, and there's a lot to suggest that he was bribed. Uh, what you might ask? Well, this is something that our attorneys presented to the judge um, in, in December of last year uh, when we were before her. Uh, one of our attorneys, Judith Ritter, said, you know, you can make the argument that 
um, witnesses are paid for transportation or if they miss um, work and they're not able uh, to get paid because they have to be in the courtroom. But in the case of Robert Chobert, um, the witness was kept in a hotel room during the course of the trial. He was fed and every night he was driven to work by the police. So what exactly is this payment for, if not uh, a bribe uh, for his uh, statement and testimony against Mumia? Um, so that's one of the major uh, pieces of new evidence that we see emerging. We also see a series of letters pertaining to the other key witness, Cynthia White, who was a sex worker at the time. And in these memos, the prosecutor, Joe McGill, is tracking her uh, movements and the movements of her case in other courts. And he is essentially telling other prosecutors in other states where she's in court, please don't make any decision uh, on her case or in terms of convictions against her unless you talk to me. And what emerges is uh, a situation in which she's facing in other uh, courts and in other uh, judicial systems upwards of 20 years in prison if convicted. She does not spend one day in prison. And every time she stopped by police uh, for being a sex worker, she's immediately let go. Uh, clearly suggesting that uh, in exchange for her testimony, she got off on numerous charges and was able to continue um, to be a sex worker without interference uh, from the government. And finally, the last piece of evidence, new evidence that emerges is uh, a roster belonging to the prosecutor at the time, Joe McGill, in which he is tracking the race of potential jurors. That is known as a Batson violation. Uh, the practice of discrimination in jury selection, which if proved leads to uh, a dismissal of the case in many instances and um, the release of the prisoner. Judge Lucretia Clemens did not think that any of this evidence was worthy of an evidentiary hearing. And that's all we were asking for. We were asking for an evidentiary hearing to examine and review the validity, the validity of this evidence. We were not even asking for a new trial. Well, the, the prosecutors that, who took over, it took them over a hundred days to, to study this information, not 60. Um, does, does Lucretia Clemens doesn't offer back any kind of uh, an argument to backing that the, the there's no need for a trial? I and mean, what do you what is your what, what are you thinking about what, what they were discussing or, or, or studying over the last hundred days? I mean, most of us could probably figure it out in, 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 in a couple of hours. Perhaps even 15 minutes. 
Um, well, the reasons she gave for denying the Batson violation, discrimination and jury selection, was a procedural one that our attorneys uh, did not cross-examine the DA, uh, Joe McGill, back in 1995 uh, during uh, one of the hearings connected to uh, one of Mumia's appeals at the time. So she said uh, that you didn't do your job uh, in 1995. You should have discovered this evidence back then had you called uh, Joe McGill to the stand. Um, and if you would asked him, he would certainly have given over to you uh, this document in which he's tracing and tracking um, the race of each of the uh, potential jurors. That's that's like asking the goat to watch the lettuce. Uh, these these documents and this new evidence was hidden uh, from the defense for a reason. Uh, the DA is not going to engage in uh, a constitutional violation and turn that over um, to, to the enemy, essentially, um, the opposing party. Uh, it, it really shocks the conscience, um, her argumentation. And then um, the other evidence uh, is uh, example or are examples of Brady violations. That is the suppression of potentially exculpatory evidence on the part of a prosecutor. And what she says in her 39 page um, ruling uh, decision is that, yeah, well, even if there was bribery involved um, in uh, these case, the cases of these witnesses, um, that would not have uh, uh, exempted Mumia from conviction. Uh, these uh, violations, this briber bribery, was not um, was not critical to Mumia's conviction, so it would not have made a difference, which in and of itself is hair-raising. <laughs> First of all, it's factually wrong. Uh, Mumia was convicted in the absence of material evidence. He was convicted through the uh, bribed testimonies, we now know, um, of people called to the stand like Robert Chobert and Cynthia White. Um, that's it. A and a, a, a cop who 30 more than, excuse me, more than three months after, um, after the, uh, the killing of Officer Faulkner, uh, this police officer one day woke up and remembered that Mumia had allegedly confessed to killing police officer uh, Daniel Faulkner. So that is what uh, convicts Mumia, the testimonies of three people, and the judge, Lucretia Clemens, says, well, the bribery of two of them would not have made a difference. 
And so on that basis, I'm di dismissing the case. How is Mumia doing these days? Uh, how's his health and his spirit? Well, Mumia is um, quite uh, an astonishingly uh, vibrant and resilient human being. And he's he's holding up considering. I happen to be talking to his attorney um, about the decision when he called. Uh, he, he just happened to call me. Uh, while I was speaking to the to the uh, to the attorney, and I connected them, um, and he was concerned about how she was doing, and uh, reassured her that she and the other attorneys in the case did a phenomenal job arguing the law. Um, so that's the type of human being Mumia is. He his concern for others. Um, is is boundless um but the next day i did talk to him and and he did express um just dismay uh but you know he continues to to fight and keep himself productive he's working on a phd program at the university of um california at santa cruz he's in the history of consciousness program, getting a PhD there. That's the program where uh, Angela Davis, um, the professor emeritus, uh, taught for many years. Um, so he's he's continuing to be productive and to think and write about um, injustice uh, the world over and its root causes and what we can do about it. Mumia has the support from people all over the world, in France, Germany, South Africa, and Canada. What would you tell supporters in terms of what they can do now to set Mumia free? Well, what we see from this decision is that um, the law is politics by other means. Um, and if we are going to free Mumia, it's going to take an international movement um, to free him. We need to take uh, his case to the streets, to our churches, to our schools, to our workplaces. We need to revive um, the violations in this case and connect uh, the violations in this case uh, to the crisis of imprisonment in the United States and the world over. Apparently, mass incarceration uh, has been exported by the United States um, to continents uh, around the world. Uh, so we need to connect Mumia and the struggle to free Mumia to the struggle to, to liberate all of us, including the planet, um, and fight it out in the public square. Uh, we need help, especially in Philadelphia, which is the hometown of the Fraternal Order of Police and um, a city in which the Fraternal Order of Police has successfully shut down public debate and discussion on the case. So my my advice um, is to first 
learn learn the case, uh, become familiar with its violations and the broader significance of the case politically, um, and uh, tell a friend, uh, show a film. I, I made a film titled Justice on Trial, the case of Mumia Abu-Jamal, which is now on YouTube. The good thing um, is that I put the film for the first time on YouTube about three weeks ago, and it now has over 25,000 views. So there is an interest um, in the case, and we need to continue um, to run to run with um, with that. And um, each one teach one. It's been great talking to you, Professor Fernandez. Thank you so much for being available and, and for your continued hard work for Mumiabu Jamal. Thank you very much. Professor Johanna Fernandez is with the Department of History at Baruch College and a longtime supporter of Mumia Abu Jamal. We reached her in New York. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. The group, the Organization of African Unity, now called Africa Unity, has long been seeking to foster political and economic integration among member states and eradicating colonialism and neocolonialism from the continent. There have been developments moving away from these anti-imperialist goals, taking the form of the presence of the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, and military formations like U.S. African Command, or AFRICOM, to shed light on how well African nations are doing overcoming these challenges to their pan-African drive for unity, freedom, self-determination, and collective prosperity, we're joined by Abiyomi Azikiwe. He's the editor of Pan-African Newswire and a regular contributor to Global Research. I'm interested in more recent developments, particularly around the time the U.S. AFRICON was established in 2008. A commander said the, the purpose of the command is to work alongside African military personnel to support their military operations. Can you elaborate a little on how this organization works to a degree against Pan-African unity? Well, in regard to uh, AFRICOM, this is the uh, 15th anniversary of the launching of AFRICOM uh, this month. And uh, it's quite interesting that they said uh, at the outset that they were only interested in strengthening and enhancing the security capabilities of African Union member states, yet over the last 15 years, we've seen more instability uh, on the African continent. Uh, in regard to uh, the Sahel region, for example, we've seen military coup d'etats in Mali, uh, in Guinea-Conakry, as well as in Burkina Faso, and uh, in Chad uh, as well. And what is interesting about all of this is that um, some of the people, particularly in Mali, as well as in Guinea-Conakry, who led the coups, had been trained uh, in the United States war colleges. And in addition to that, they had in involved themselves in training operations and joint military operations with the United States Africa Command. Uh, so we can still see a link uh, between uh, the involvement of the Pentagon uh, and its uh, Africa Command and growing instability in Africa. So, no, there has not been uh, uh, any improvement 
of the security situation uh, in Africa as a result of AFRICOM. And the same thing holds true of uh, France. Uh, they have said they have liquidated Operation Burkani, uh, but they still uh, have a presence in uh, various African states. Uh, in uh, Burkina Faso, they asked them to leave just recently. They have also asked uh, for other French personnel to leave the country. So what's interesting is, is that um, these uh, military officials uh, who have staged uh, coup d'etats and who do have ties to France and the United States seem now to be turning against them, uh, at least on a formal level, uh, because uh, you have the presence of the Wagner Group uh, from the Russian Federation in Mali. Uh, there's also uh, their presence in the Central African Republic. And in Burkina Faso, uh, the government is looking to Russia uh, and the people on a grassroots level. I mean, you see demonstrations against France. People are holding uh, Burkinabi flags, but at the same time, they're holding Russian Federation flags as well. So some very interesting developments that are going on uh, in Africa over the last uh, two to three years. Yeah, well, you mentioned like in in Mali. I mean, the, the French forces were, were located there and, and had to leave uh, a year ago. Was that not uh, in a sense of victory for, for the Pan-African cause? Yes, it is. Uh, but at the same time, uh, Africa needs to build its own indigenous security capacities. And the African Union Charter uh, extends and goes way beyond uh, what the Af Organization of African Unity had written and agreed upon in 1963. Uh, the AU uh, does call uh, for Africa's standby force, uh, but uh, it has not fully materialized. Uh, we do see uh, on a regional level, uh, African states intervening uh, in various countries. Uh, for example, now in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo, you have the East Africa community, uh, which has uh, sent troops there. Uh, and they they're also are trying to negotiate uh, some type of settlement uh, between the rebels, some of whom are backed uh, by the government of Rwanda and uh, others uh, to uh, cease fire. And uh, also uh, the United Nations has come under fire as well in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, the uh, United Nations peacekeeping mission has been accused by the people on the ground of not uh, doing enough uh, in regard to uh, uh, curtailing rebel activity in the Eastern Democratic uh, Republic of Congo. So yes, it's quite interesting. Uh, France is under fire and they do not want to leave uh, these areas in West Africa because they never really left militarily in most of the countries. <clears throat> For example, um, in uh, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, they had a presence, a very strong presence in the uh, Gabon uh, the Central African Republic in Chad. Uh, so yes, they do not want to leave because they have strategic interests in these various uh, African countries. For example, in Niger, which is also in West Africa, uh, in uh, the Sahel, uh, they in fact own uh, the mineral uh, resources as it relates to uranium, uh, the uranium mines uh, that are exploiting uh, that uh, strategic uh, resource uh, in fact, is owned uh, by a company based in Paris. So, yeah, it's going to be a, a huge struggle uh, going forward uh, to eliminate uh, foreign military interventions in Africa. Now, a new report 
from the United Nations Independent Agency reveals a, a significant increase in recruits to extremist groups, uh, and, and that 92% are joining for economic reasons rather than religious ones. I mean, the, the Somali government is currently carrying out uh, what has been described as the most significant offensive against the Al-Shabaab extremist group in, in more than a decade. Is this increasing tendency to attract extremists helping to justify the continued presence of U.S. militia? Yes, and it's quite interesting as well because um, these groups uh, follow the same pattern as a lot of the other jihadist organizations uh, which have grown out of the conflicts in Afghanistan, uh, in Iraq, Syria, and Libya. Uh, so there very well could be a connection. Uh, for example, Saudi Arabia uh, is known uh, to have supported uh, many of these uh, so-called uh, jihadists or Takfiri organizations. And uh, they are doing this uh, with the blessings of the United States. And why would the United States want to fund uh, groups to destabilize uh, independent countries in West Asia and in Africa? And as you just mentioned, it provides a rationale uh, for uh, these imperialist countries to maintain or to escalate their presence uh, in these various uh, geopolitical regions. Uh, we've seen the situation in Somalia. They've been there uh, now for a decade and a half. And uh, the European Union, uh, which funds a lot of the operations uh, of uh, AMISOM, which is now uh, the uh, mission for transition in Somalia, uh, they fund a lot of the projects there. And there was a report uh, that was published just recently indicating that um, a lot of the soldiers are not being paid or they're being paid on an irregular uh, level. So obviously there's corruption that's going on uh, in that situation as well. So I believe that uh, the United States is involved uh, in stirring up uh, these conflicts, uh, maintaining the conflicts, and in a sense, uh, using the conflicts as a, uh, a, a rationale or justification uh, for their continued uh, presence. For example, uh, when uh, President Biden uh, first came into office, he deployed uh, 800 uh, U.S. troops to Somalia. Uh, that is over and above uh, the Central Intelligence Agency and State Department operatives that are already uh, uh, working uh, and have been working for years in Somalia. And it does not uh, eliminate uh, the need for them to carry out periodic uh, drone strikes and bombings. Uh, they carried out one two weeks ago uh, it was announced uh, several days later by uh, Secretary of Defense uh, Lloyd Austin. So, yes, I think it's the African Union should address this head on. And uh, they will have to uh, get the African standby force up and ready and ready to deploy. Uh, because otherwise, uh, you're going to have uh, France, uh, the European Union, the United States, uh, all of which are part of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. They're going to continue. Uh, there are interventions uh, in Africa as well as in uh, the so-called Middle East. So uh, I just uh, maybe uh, you could also comment on 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 the IMF and the World Bank. Uh, they're they're also in some sense uh, you know contributing to the sense of I guess disunity between the African states, right? Most definitely, and uh, we see uh, in Zambia. Uh, just recently, uh, they uh, had to apply uh, for an IMF bailout package, 
uh, because they could not meet their obligations in regard to uh, international debt. Uh, the same situation exists now in Ghana, in West Africa. Ghana has undergone uh, significant uh, economic growth over the last uh, two decades, uh, yet uh, a lot of the uh, loans in which uh, they uh, became involved in uh, have proven to be unsustainable. Uh, so these are two examples of African states, which initially had a very uh, progressive and even revolutionary uh, posture uh, and uh, trajectory. Um, Ghana was uh, the first uh, country uh, supposedly uh, south of the Sahara, uh, which gained its independence in 1957 under Dr. Kwame Nkrumah and the Convention People's Party. And they were anti-imperialists. Uh, they wanted to build socialism in Ghana. And, and, and Nkrumah was the most militant advocate of African uh, unity, pan-Africanism uh, under socialism. And uh, in Zambia, for example, uh, the late president, Kenneth Kaunda, uh, was also a socialist. And uh, he also uh, assisted uh, the national liberation movements of uh, fighting uh, for freedom throughout the entire uh, Southern Africa region. Today, um, as a result of political machinations from the West and also subjective factors uh, domestically, uh, these countries have fallen under the thumb of the International uh, Monetary Fund. And uh, Ghana, we know, is quite concerned about uh, the spread, possible spread or potential spread of uh, these jihadist groups into their borders. Uh, they, are, they, they share a border with Burkina Faso. Uh, and um, so they're very concerned. Also Togo uh, in uh, a small section of that country, which also shares an Eastern border with Ghana has uh, also fallen victim uh, to the rebel groups. Uh, so it's a catch 22 uh, in that sense, uh, like the uh, novel and the movie. Uh, what is happening is that uh, the United States is creating the situ creating situations in which uh, the, the, the objective is to make these countries more and more dependent upon the United States, not only uh, financially uh, but also and diplomatically, but also uh, on a uh, military level as well. Um, well, uh, on that point, I, the United States is applying pressure on African states to side with their position on sanctioning Africa, you know, for the for their role in Ukraine, you know, to help, you know, isolate Ukraine. And uh, I know the the African Union is uh, sort of saying no, we should the diplomacy should prevail. But I, I'm wondering if if anything they're doing right now, if the the pressure is 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 a, a few countries gonna, I don't know, are they succeeding in any way in in, in changing a few minds? Well, um, only uh, Ghana uh, was one country that spoke out against uh, the intervention uh, early on, uh, but they have really not um, uh, returned to that uh, position uh, because the general position of the African Union is that uh, they maintain a neutral or non-aligned position in regard to the uh, Russian special military intervention in Ukraine. Uh, other countries, uh, for example, South Africa, uh, just recently announced that they were going to con conduct naval um, exercises with both uh, the Russian Federation and the People's Republic of China, which has raised a lot of eyebrows uh, in the United States and among other NATO countries. And there's, of course, pressure 
uh, against the Republic of South Africa in that regard as well. Uh, so I think um, the Western media narrative on Ukraine is starting to collapse, even among uh, people uh, who are not necessarily politically conscious in regard to the role of Washington on a global scale. Uh, we see a lessening of uh, enthusiasm and sympathy uh, for uh, the United States uh, military backing of uh, the Ukraine government uh, because uh, people here in this country are suffering from inflation, uh, high rents, high mortgages, high energy costs, uh, deterioration of uh, national infrastructure as it relates to education, uh, housing, uh, water services, utility services, environmental degradation. Uh, so just a blank check uh, being written uh, to the Zelensky government uh, to continue this war, uh, in my opinion, is not sustainable, even within the U.S. Uh, political uh, framework. So uh, they have to keep coming up, uh, you know, with different rationales uh, for writing these checks uh, to Zelensky, when in fact, uh, a lot of the uh, weapons that are being sent to Ukraine are winding up uh, in the hands of rebels and criminal gangs in other parts of the world. So I think that uh, they have not been successful overall on the African continent in encouraging the African continent to support uh, the U.S. position against the uh, Russian uh, Federation. Zelensky uh, called for a meeting uh, with African Union member states about four months ago, and my understanding, only two showed up. And I believe that was the uh, the commission head, you know, that's his job. Uh, he works in... Uh, Ethiopia, he's originally from Chad, and of course, the then president of the uh, AU, uh, which was uh, President uh, Chesakede of the Democratic Republic of Congo. They have gone, uh, the AU have gone and met with uh, uh, President Putin in Sochi. Also, um, there is a Russian-Africa uh, summit that is scheduled uh, for later on this year. It was initially scheduled for November, December, uh, and it has been uh, postponed until later uh, this year. And I think the uh, press conference, the joint press conference between uh, Dr. Nalidi Pandor, who is the foreign minister of South Africa, and uh, Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russian Federation, is instructive. <clears throat> People should listen to that press conference. It's available online <clears throat> over an hour of discussions about the character of the relations between South Africa and the Russian Federation as well as how both countries view the current international situation. Okay, you've got about 30 seconds left, but I, I'm just wondering if you could uh, maybe comment on looking ahead to the future. Are we, uh, are, are we gonna see another Libya or do you see another, maybe perhaps a, a, a Rwanda or is there anything that really, any flashpoint that you see in the, in the future that uh, maybe we'll feel the need to respond to? Yeah, the potential is there in various African countries. Uh, for example, in West Africa, uh, where France uh, is being uh, heavily criticized, there could be uh, a incident or a series of incidents that encourages uh, a French, joint French-U.S. Uh, operation. The same situation could develop in South Africa uh, due to the tensions now between South Africa and Washington. So the potential is there. Uh, we always call upon the peace, anti-war, and anti-imperialist uh, groupings across the world to remain vigilant in regard to U.S. as well as NATO intervention in Africa, as well as other geopolitical regions around the world. 
Abiyomi Azikiwe is the editor of the Pan-African Newswire. Thank you very much for joining us. Okay, thank you for the invitation. On April 4th, the Black Alliance for Peace launched a people-centered campaign for a zone of peace in the Americas. It was part of a collective campaign involving organizations from Washington, D.C., Havana, Cuba, and Port-au-Prince, Haiti. It would call on people to resist the U.S.-EU-NATO axis of domination, as well as the increasing militarization of the region and U.S.-NATO soft power practices in our Americas. To tell us more about this, and we're joined by Austin Cole. He's coordinator of BAP's Haiti Americas team and was on the group's delegation to Havana, Cuba, where a simultaneous launch event for the Zone of Peace was held. Uh, thank you for, for joining us, Austin Cole. Um, there's a, a list of demands. Uh, it calls for the elimination of a U.S. Southern Command, or SOUTHCOM, and of other U.S. military bases in the region. But these military organizations say they need to defend the region against threats such as terrorism and China and Russia as well. And then their humanitarian assistance program funds projects that enhance the capacity of host nations to respond when disasters strike. So with all of these benevolent sounding campaigns in stock, why do you make eliminating these U.S. military groups as pretty much your main goal? Yeah, thanks, Michael. Um, it's good to be here and, and as one of the co-coordinators of the team and, and having been on the delegation, like you mentioned, um, it, it, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you a little bit about, about the zone of peace. Um, it's a good question and, and I'll make sure to kind of, so that you know and so the listeners know, um, these demands that we have are kind of just an initial set of demands, right? So we wanted to, as part of the campaign, you know, give people an idea about what we're talking about and what building peace looks like. And that's why we've really focused on these military pieces right now um, and anti-militarism in the region. Now, you asked kind of about Southcom, about NATO, about some of these practices and why that's a focus. Um, you sort of alluded to it already, um, you know, Southcom and NATO kind of talk a good game. Um, you know, they speak about why, about peace um, and about preserving peace. And, and, you know, we've called this a zone of peace, right? Which is reckoning back to the 2014 declaration from CELAC um, in Havana. But we're talking about two different types of peace, right? So the, the peace that, you know, Southcom and, and NATO and the U.S. military may be referring to is what you might call a militarized Peace, right, um, or a some what some people might call a neoliberal peace, right, and and what they are really talking about is their total domination, full spectrum domination, right, over the region and over the world, right. So the U.S. and NATO having the ability to do what they want, when they want, how they want, right, and to force and coerce others to abide by their rules, right. And so what they might call peace is the U.S. military domination of the entire region, right? And that looks like sanctions on Cuba, calling Cuba, you know, labeling Cuba as a terrorist state when the only thing really that Cuba exports to other countries is doctors and health officials, right? Um, when it might look like, you know, placing sanctions on other places in the region, it might look like General Laura Richardson 
um, describing the U.S.'s interest in the region purely based on the ability to extract lithium from Chile, Peru, Bolivia, right? And so there's when when they are talking about peace, they are really talking about the ability to extract and to dominate of, from other regions, right? From other countries, sorry, um, in the region. And so that's really why we focus in these initial demands and as part of our campaign, really focusing on being against militarism, against the expansion of military tactics that are now, you know, really, really sophisticated in the way that they talk about them. They talk about preserving eco the ecology of the region and environmental, you know, being able to respond to the climate crisis, while also conveniently leaving out the fact that the U.S. military is the biggest polluter in the world. Right. And so there's a way that they are using language and they understand, you know, how to adapt to the times that are needed. It's no longer OK to come in and say we're going to topple a dictator. Right. Or we're going to topple an elected government. Right. At least not right right now. Um, and so they're using different means to sneak that militarism in. And that's really why we focus on on that in this kind of initial launch. Yeah. Well, actually, in 1973, they, they toppled a di democracy and, and replaced it with a, a dictatorship, right? right? Uh, almost uh, 50 years ago. And of course, in 2004, more recently, uh, the U.S., Canada and France staged a coup against democracy in Haiti, right? And, and whenever something like this happens in the future, I'm wondering what practical, realistic difference would the zone of peace make in, in terms of I guess, eroding support for these Monroe Doctrine style policies. Yeah, you know, I think that's a really, really critical thing for that, that we wanted to highlight and that we are building towards. Right. So I want to make it clear as well that, as you mentioned, kind of in the intro, which which I think was a really great intro um, to the campaign, it is collective. Right. And the goal is not for this to be, you know, Black Lines for Peace doing all of this, right, but to really, um, for us to kind of make people aware that this is something that has already been called for, right, um, and despite that, you know, the, the region has continued to be militarized, as has much of the world, right, um, and so what this, what that concretely looks like, one is building popular struggle, right, and so how, and, and how do we do, how do we build popular struggle towards opposing militarism, and, and I guess this comes from Sort of this idea that we have about collective self-determination, right? And and that actually any sustainable peace, any sustainable change or transformation in the society that we have needs to be rooted in the masses of people, right? This can't be something that you know is only talked about in diplomatic, you know, in diplomatic rooms or through you know very high-level civil society cha um, changes and, and conversations. It really needs to be something that is rooted in the people. Of the region, and so how, how do we start to do that, right? Or how are we thinking about starting to do that? One is is just doing things like this, where we're letting people know that this exists, right? That there are people thinking about this and dedicated to this, and doing that kind of popular education and awareness um, to let people know, you know, things can be different, and here is how um, militarism is affecting not only you know places over there, but also you know, for people in the U.S., particularly at home, right, domestically, and how those things are tied together. Mm. And then two, um, we, we really want to tie different groups that are focused on, you know, popular struggle, that are focused on community, um, sort of grassroots community um, organizing and action, that are focused on mobilization 
of the masses of people, tie those groups throughout the region together, right? Um, so not only to do kind of to, to say, hey, we're friends and we're friendly and we support each other, but actually how can we be coordinated and connected? Um, how can we kind of move the needle forward against militarization so that, you know, if there's a base, you know, currently being um, planned in Colombia, that we can actually connect more seamlessly with the folks on the ground that are opposing that base in Colombia, we can oppose it, you know, from, from here, from um, the U.S., the so-called United States that we are in, and we can also tie in other folks from across the region who may have similar goals in opposing, you know, um, in shutting down, you know, U.S. military bases and stopping new ones from being expanded. Um, and then, and then, lastly, there's just sort of this idea of, of how can we build programming, right? And how can we build sort of concrete campaigns that both connect the connect to the needs of people on the ground um, throughout the region to others in other countries, right? Or to other institutions or multi kind of multilateral or, or regional institutions from an alternative perspective. So I'm not talking about, you know, USAID or the World Bank or anything like that, but actually people-centered alternatives that can be organized as well. Because the factors, the, the militarized and sort of neoliberal um, organizations that work to extract from our communities that work you know dominate our communities both uh domestically and internationally um they are organized very very well right they are set up very well and they've had many years to do it um so in order to counter that we need to be organized as well so part of this you know and part of the reason for going to havana as well and and having part of the launch in porto france as well is to to be more organized and coordinated in a real on the ground, real connected manner to popular struggle, to popular movements. It's a fascinating project. I, I really thank you for uh, sharing your thoughts with our audience. Uh, appreciate it. Austin Cole is coordinator and, uh, of BAP's Haiti America's team. Uh, we reached him in Havana, Cuba. If you want to, uh, excuse me, Boston, Massachusetts. And if you want to hear more about uh, this, you can go to blackallianceforpeace.com. That's our show for this week. Next week in the lead up to Earth Day, Bandana Shiva is on to warn environmentalists about the Bill Gates style philanthro-capitalist agenda. Don't miss it. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show airs on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Thanks once again for joining us.